<laughs> Just before the service, I was handed a lovely little piece of paper that ends with, bottom line, love your pastor. If you'd like to read what it's all about and how to love your pastor more, I will give you a photocopy. <laughs> Just uh, let you know later on. It's very important. Don't forget. Thank you. Oh, yeah, no, of, course, of course we do. All right, touche. I'll try my best. You are very lovable, I have to say. Genesis chapter 14. Before we do, though, do you remember what Bob was speaking on last week? He also mentioned about the Esau classes that his wife Andrea had got going at Ashford, do you remember? 150 people had been through. God was doing a great work through this great initiative he had put on Andrea's heart. And that there was one Chinese lady called Ji who, uh, who wanted to be baptised. Do you remember? Bless her. Well, little update. While Bob was sharing about Ji last Sunday morning, Andrea was at one of the morning services at Ashford. She was sitting in the front row at the beginning of the service. And their son, uh, George, was back from Eastbourne. He's doing a year out with the church in Eastbourne, and he was just back for the week. And so he's sitting with Andrea at the front. And at the beginning of the service, he's nudging Andrea. Mum, Mum, look who it is. She had turned up last Sunday. She'd only been twice before, do you remember, and hadn't told her husband. So I hope he doesn't hear this tape somehow. Uh, she turned up for the third time last Sunday. And during the service, Graham Hall, who leads the church, was leading the service and they were doing communion, strangely enough. And he said, Graham, this is Graham, he said, I don't normally do this during communion. I normally just explain it's for believers only. And if that's not you, just let it pass to one side. Let's get on with it. He said, I, real, I feel really led that this is an opportunity for someone to understand about the bread and the wine and what Christ has done on the cross. This might be an opportunity for people here this morning to give their lives to Christ for the first time. And G nudged Andrea and went, that is me, that is me, I want to do it, I want to do it. And so Andrea, they shared the bread and wine together, Andrea prayed a directional prayer. Directional prayers aren't always great, they're a bit manipulative, but sometimes we use them. Uh, she used a, a directional prayer to help re-explain what the bread and wine was really all about, just to make sure G got it. But we think something's happened. It's brilliant, and now they're talking about an alpha course. So the story continues, brilliant, isn't it? It's wonderful news, really, really pleased. Yes, that's worthy of applause. And that was happening while Bob was telling us all about her and he didn't even know half the story by then, did he? Brilliant. Genesis chapter 14. Continue our story. We're not looking at every chapter, every story in Genesis, otherwise we would be in the book for a very long time. So we've skipped a little bit. There's a bit about Abraham, a lot I'll mention in a second. But we're skipping to a very, very interesting chapter. This is one of those chapters that is often skipped by or read through quickly but not really dwelt on, don't really understand what it's all about. But the Bible students who go to theological classes and they love to dive into who this bloke is that pops up in this chapter, we're going to get a chance to dive into him today. It's really important. He's brilliant. He's a very, very strange character. He's very fascinating. Pops up, disappears again. Flip, flip, flop, he's gone. But there is a huge amount in here, a huge amount of treasure to, uh, to look into. So I'm just going to pray and then we'll dive deeper. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is not a dead word. We thank you that it is a living word. That it still brings life change today. That through your word, life comes from death. Lord, through your word, revelation 
is made of you and of your glory and who you are, of your character, of what you've done, or what you've done throughout history, what you're doing in our lives now, what your promises are over us. We thank you that this is a living word that we can depend upon. And so yet again this morning, as we look into it further in one particular part, Lord, may this bring new life in dead places, in our hearts, in our minds, in our situations, whatever it might be to each one of us here. But Lord, may you bring life in dead places through hearing your word this morning. By Holy Spirit, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, chapter 14. We're not going to read all of it. Because to be honest, the first chunk, you've probably got it separated into two chunks. One bit will say something about Abraham rescuing Lot. Does that have got a little heading? And then another bit about Melchizedek. The first chunk about rescuing Lot is a lot of names and it can get quite confusing. So I'm going to give a pricey of that, an overview, and then we're going to read that second part together and that's the bit we're going to focus on. Okay. So just explain. Through the first 16 verses, just before this, Abraham and his nephew Lot, they've gone separate ways in a, in a previous chapter. And uh, Lot chose, chose the good part. Abraham let Lot decide which part of the land they were going to have. And Lot said, I'm going to have that best bit over there. Thank you very much. Off he goes. Abraham has the rest. And they've gone separate ways. Some news comes to Abraham about Lot in a moment. See, what's been going on in this land is there's been a lot of battles and a lot of raids. There's a lot of war going on, a lot of fights. It's a bit like, you know, the, the final Hobbit film is coming up at Christmas time and it's called The Battle of Five Armies. Rawr! Five armies finally colliding. They've been building up over the previous films. There's going to be five big, big armies coming through this huge, great war. That's a bit like what's going on here, except this time we've got nine armies. Hey! Bible's even better. There are four kings, the four kings under one guy called Cador Leoma. He kind of leads the team. Four kings... Now, these aren't kings as we'd expect them now. They're more like small-town governors, small-town mayors. They'd be responsible for a, a small city or a town of five to 15,000 people, that kind of size. And four of these kings are banded together. And their armies, they're, they're more raiding parties, really, rather than strict um, reams of infantry. But under Cador Leoma, these four kings and their armies, their raiding parties... They are raiding further and further south through the land. They're getting further and further south, doing their raids, and they're getting nearer and nearer to where Abraham lives now. Five other kings think we're not having any of that. So five other kings, including the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, those are two names that will pop up later in Genesis. These five kings rise up against these naughty four kings. And what happens? You get these four, four armies versus five armies. We've got nine armies all fighting now. The four armies, the four kings, win. They beat the five. And they steal all the spoils of war. They nick all the women and the cattle and this kind of thing. They also take Lot, Abram's nephew. And they all rush back up north. Up north. They all head back up north. Yeah, from Newcastle. The bad is from Newcastle. Okay, an escapee from this big fight, he runs away and he runs straight to Abram and goes, Abram, the four kings have beaten the five kings. They've taken the spoils of war. They've also taken your nephew Lot. What does Abram do? He gets together his own army. And unbelievably, he's got 318 trained men at hand. I think we'd struggle to find 318 trained fighting men in Herne Bay. 
We might find 318 Millwall supporters, which is the next best thing. But, <laughs> might do. But, we wouldn't, but Abraham, at his disposal, he's responsible for a clan of people. And he gets his 318 trained men. He gets his little army going. And three other kings and their little raiding parties as well. And they chase these four naughty kings who've escaped up north. Have a guess how far they chased them for. What do you reckon? Into Syria. Into Syria. At what kind of distance do you think they chase them? This chase goes on for 120 miles. 120 miles. What they used to do in those days, it wouldn't be one long sprint for 120 miles, you'd die. It's a, it's a run, walk, run. So they, they run away, the others eventually catch up with them, they'd have a fight, they'd all have a rest because they're all ex- exhausted, the others will kind of walk off, then they'll start running because they see the others are catching up with them. And this is kind of springy kind of run, walk, run kind of chase over 120 miles. Eventually, Abraham wins. He wins and he gets Lot back. That sets the scene for this bit we're just about to read. Because you see, we now come to the kind of the post-match talk, if you like. The debrief after. And the king of Sodom offers Abraham their own spoils of war. But Abraham declines. He says, I don't want those, and we'll find out why in a minute. Now on its own, that would make sense, wouldn't it? It's just a simple little punchline to the story. However, this strange character pops up and disappears in the middle of all this with no, exp- no further explanation at the time. So let's read it and find out what happens. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Cador Leoma and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, Abram, at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aino, Eskol and Mamre take their share. Who's this guy who just pops up in the middle of all that? See those verses again, 18 and 19. In the middle of this little chapter, the king of Sodom, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High. And he goes on to pray over Abram. And then he disappears again. Who is this man? Who is he? Well, let's look at his name first of all. There's lots of little details about this guy just in those two verses that make a lot of sense when we look at it with more of an objective point of view. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. So there's a big clue for starters. King of righteousness. And what else does it say to him? Verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of Salem. Salem is what would later become Jerusalem. When David nicks it off the Jebusites, he renames it as Jerusalem. It's the same place, Salem. Salem, the word, 
comes from the same root, the same origins as shalom, which is the Hebrew word for wholeness, for peace. So this king of righteousness is also the king of peace. Hello. The king of righteousness and the king of priests, uh, the king of peace. What else do we know about him? Verse 18, it continues to say in brackets, he was priest of God Most High. So hang on a minute. He's king of, king of righteousness, king of peace, and he's a priest. To be a king and a priest at the same time is a big no-no. Saul tries it later on. King Saul, later on in the Old Testament, he tries to do a priestly thing and he gets judged vehemently for it. They are meant to be separate. The royal line and the line of priests are meant to be separate. But here's a guy where apparently it's okay for him to be a king and a priest at the same time. A priest is a mediator between man and God. Kings weren't allowed to do that. That was separate. This guy, he's both. And he's not judged for it. Interesting. Also, you may note that whenever someone of significance is mentioned in these historical books, they are given some kind of verification of who they are. The son of. Or they begat and had these children. He was the brother of. His great-granddad was. Or these, ge- these genealogies, sometimes in full as well. They're given some validity by explaining who they are and where they come from. Melchizedek is the king of righteousness, king of peace, and he's a priest at the same time. He's quite significant already, isn't he? He's given no genealogy, no father, no kids, no kin. He's just there. He's got no beginning, no end, no genealogy, apparently. This is very interesting, isn't it? And what does he do? He blesses Abram. And how does he do that? Not only by praying over him, but he gives him bread and wine. And that was, in that culture, to bless someone was included to give them bread and wine, which means you're giving them bread, you're giving them sustenance, and you're giving them wine. It's like life joy. You're blessing someone with this kind of, this life-giving vigor. I want to revive you with food and wine. It's a way of blessing someone. So this guy, this priestly guy, is, given, is, is, is blessing Abraham, not just with a prayer, but with actual physical life sustenance. He's reviving him after the war, after this battle. And what does Abraham do in return? He gives him 10%. End of verse 20, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Just like that. See, to Abraham, tithing, giving 10% of what you own, wasn't a duty. The law hadn't even arrived yet. That's through Moses and onwards. It wasn't a duty. This was just a heart thing. And he's effectively saying, everything I own is yours. Can I just honour you with some of it? Just think about this. Here we have Abram, the promised father of a nation. God's spoken to him very, very clearly about this. Abram is the promised father of a nation and beyond And yet even he considers the one standing before him as someone even greater than he is. Very interesting. We have a king of righteousness, a king of peace, with no beginning, no end. He's a priest and a king at the same time, and Abraham considers he's greater than he. Am I reading too much into this? Turn to Hebrews chapter 7.
The writer of the Hebrews has been reading this very same chapter in Genesis, the book of Moses as they had at the time. And by the Holy Spirit, a lot more has been revealed to him that says exactly the same thing. Hebrews chapter 7. It's near the end of the New Testament. Right from the beginning, Melchizedek gets mentioned, doesn't he? This very strange character. Are we all there? For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Is it all here? He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. The writer to the Hebrews is trying to explain to the Hebrew people who understood the temple system and the law. He's trying to show them there is a big signpost here in this strange character who popped up for two verses in the book of Moses. So who is this? Who is he? There's two possibilities. One, it is Jesus. It's a possibility. The other is that, at the very least, he is a representation, a foreshadow of Jesus, the Messiah who was to come. Many times in the, or a number of times in the Old Testament, as we know it, Jesus does pop up. They're called theophanies, or more specifically Christophanies. It's when God reveals himself physically to a man's own eyes, and they interact, they speak, sometimes they even touch, wrestle. And we could go into it another time. Maybe we should even do a sermon series on the Christophanies. I don't know. It could be quite exciting. But these are moments when God reveals himself physically, and it's most likely that it's actually Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, that is standing in that place at that time in the Old Testament. It's almost like Jesus can't wait to come amongst us. And throughout history, he's just diving in from stage right. And just for a little bit, and the Father's going, not just yet, okay. Can I go now? Just for a little bit, but not properly. And eventually his time arrives in 4 BC or wherever it was. Was this a Christophany? I don't know. I'm not so sure. I'll explain why in a second. But there are Christophanies very clearly. Later, Abraham meets him. Hagar, we might come across in a few chapters' time. Uh, Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham's grandson, uh, Jacob. Isaiah sees him. Chapter 6 is a biggie. And even in the book of Daniel, the fiery furnace, is probably quite most likely that's Jesus in the fiery furnace with him, not just an angel. He keeps popping up in different places. Is this a Christophany? I'm not so sure. He doesn't refer to himself as Yahweh. He's not referred to as the angel of the Lord is the phrase that normally gets used when it is Jesus popping up. Psalm 110 talks about Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek, not saying being Melchizedek. Yeah? And even in Hebrews 6, which we'll read in, in a second, again, it still talks about Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek rather than being Melchizedek. I think it's unlikely. We'd like to think it is, wouldn't we? Hey. But I think it's this particular time it's unlikely this is actually Jesus. But what I think it is, it's a guy called Melchizedek, but for a reason, this is what's known as foreshadowing. 
This is a guy who foreshadows, points to the great Messiah to come. See, the best writers use this method, this tool called foreshadowing. It's where you set the end of your tale early with lots of little clues along the way, which when the ending happens, your readers or your viewers of the film can go, oh, little clues that you wouldn't have got at the time. There's a guy called Chekhov said uh, to writers a long time ago, he said, never put a loaded rifle on a stage unless you're willing to use it at the end. Otherwise, what's it doing there? It's setting the scene early. Romeo and Juliet, the very first few lines of Romeo and Juliet give the ending away. <laughs> you're not going to know until you've read the ending. Oh, right. Who's seen Finding Nemo? Yeah, you like Finding Nemo? There's a new one coming, isn't there? But two years earlier, there was another film called Monsters, Inc. And in that, the little girl, Boo, is holding a cuddly toy of Nemo. Two years before the Nemo film actually arrived. There's a little bit of foreshadowing that in hindsight you can go, Ah, oh, that's clever. You're going to have to watch it now, aren't you? Yeah. Wizard of Oz. You've got that black and white section at the beginning before she ends up in Oz. Miss Gulch, the horrible woman in the black and white bit who's trying to get rid of Toto the dog. It's the same actress who plays the Wicked Witch of the West. And the Scarecrow, the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion all appear in human guises in that black and white bit at the beginning. And Mr. Marvel, the sham carnival fortune teller, turns out to be the same guy who's the sham Oz, the wizard, right at the end. There's all these foreshadows at the beginning that by the end time the end comes around, it all makes sense now, doesn't it? Cling. The greatest author of all time has been foreshadowing all the way through the Old Testament so when Jesus comes, people who are willing to look back in hindsight can go, ah, oh, now it makes sense. It validates Christ, doesn't it? Luke, 4, uh, Luke 24, sorry, 27. Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with two disciples. They're walking away from Jerusalem, having heard these strange reports that this great King Jesus had died, but now we're hearing that he's rose again and the tomb's empty, and they're talking about it, and they can't quite get their heads around it. And Jesus appears to them. They don't quite see him properly. He's fully revealed himself to them, but it's just this guy walking with them. And it says in verse 27, Luke 24, verse 27, and he says, And beginning with Moses, who wrote Genesis, and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Genesis is full of stuff about Jesus. Exodus is full of stuff about Jesus and so on. The Old Testament is all pointing to Jesus. It's not just an interesting history book and then eventually the proper stuff happens. It's all setting the scene. It's all the great author, God the Father, through his Holy Spirit, foreshadowing with cheeky little clues about the greatest Messiah who is on the way. You see, even the law. Do you remember ages ago I talked about the law as a mirror and a signpost? The law is a signpost. As John just mentioned earlier, we could never live up to the law. We could never fulfill the law. We will always fail at the law. And that's not God being unfair, being horrible, raising the standards so high knowing we'll never reach it. That's not being him being unfair. It's him proving a point 
that we cannot be pure. We need someone who can be. The temple and all the, all the, um, and the sacrificial system is all pointing towards Jesus, the greatest lamb who was slain for our sin. And so we have Abraham here recognising this king of righteousness, king of peace, a priest and a king at the same time, with no beginning, no end. He's honouring him as someone greater, recognising this is a part of a bigger picture. And he's honouring Melchizedek, and in turn he's honouring the great Messiah to come. God has been orchestrating this all along. So just turn back to Hebrews chapter 6, just as we end. It's only a short one today. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. This then just leads into the view verses we've already read about the writer to the Hebrews, explaining a bit more about Melchizedek. Just before that, he's made the point of what it's all about. 6.19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. This is something you can cling to and it will never let you down. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. He's talking about the temple, that holy of holies, where only the, the great priest could enter into. Jesus has done it for us now. He says, this is where Jesus has gone. As a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Even there, he separates the two. So Melchizedek was pointing the way. Jesus is someone even greater than he is. You see, we can't rule our own lives, can we? Often see on Facebook these kind of sentimental claptrap that pops up about, follow the desires of your heart. <laughs> no! <laughs> Don't do that. Get in trouble. Do what you think's best. No! <laughs> Don't do that, you get in trouble. We can't rule our own hearts up ultimately, can we? Somewhere along the point we screw it up. And human rulers at some point will let us down. Will they not? That doesn't mean we don't pray for them, that doesn't mean we don't support them, that doesn't mean we don't vote for them. We have to trust them to a degree, but inevitably someone somewhere will let us down in leadership. We need a perfect king, don't we? We need a perfect king. There we get Jesus. And we can't stand pure before God, can we? Who's ever claimed that they could stand before God and say they're pure? Hands down. Nor can we build a bridge to him. He is perfect, we are imperfect. Where do you even start? Many people think they can earn their way to heaven. By being nice, doing good things. That's just a full start to start with. And nor can others build that bridge for us. God had the priest in place to mediate on our behalf, but that was his way and one way only. And even then, that was a foreshadow of our great high priest. We need a perfect priest, Jesus, who was king and priest at the same time. It's all about him. Jesus is the perfect king to whom we can humble ourselves and allow him to rule over us. Only he knows best. Don't ever think we do. And Jesus is our perfect priest who sacrificed himself in our place for our sin willingly, voluntarily, 
He died on that cross, bearing our sin, taken on the wrath of the Father, God's hatred of sin. He took that on his shoulders for you and for me. Our great high priest, our great mediator. And then he rose again in victory to prove that was a once and for all sacrifice. So the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament foreshadows Christ. It's all setting the scene for Christ. It's all about him. It's not about wonderful history stories, about concubines and wars and whatever. This is all about Jesus ultimately. It's all setting the scene. Showing us how bad we are and showing us how perfect he is. And he's on his way. He's on his way. He's on his way. And then thankfully for us on this side of history, we can say he has come. He has come. Augustine said, the Old Testament is the New Testament revealed. Makes sense. And the New is the Old concealed. They're wrapped up in each other. One reveals the other over and over again. But even just looking back through our own lives, let alone history itself, look back through your own lives. We've got plenty of testimonies in this room where you can say, I can now look back and see God's fingerprints along the way. I can see his foreshadowing, how he's authored my life and brought me to this place where I now know him. Who can say that? Hands. Look at those hands. That's God at work. That's the author at work. Directing and authoring our lives. If you don't know him, you're not here for no reason. And he wants to speak to you. And he wants to know you. And his son has paid the price for you that you might know him. The great author has been orchestrating through history and knowing definitive proof that he's been orchestrating big things through history, his way to big up his son who has come. If that is the God we know, this is a God where we can be secure in our salvation with. If he saved us through that, he's not going to let us go, is he? If you are saved, you are always saved. And we can also know, Romans 8.28, that he works together for the good, all things, for those that love him. We can depend on that, even when it doesn't feel like it, even when it doesn't look like it, even when it seems everything's going against us. He's on our side. He's a God who orchestrates all things for his glory. It's all about Jesus. Shall we stand? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we proclaim you as our perfect king. We proclaim you as our perfect priest. We proclaim you as our saviour, as our rescuer. We proclaim you as God. And Lord, we thank you that even in just two small verses, in the very first book of the, of the Bible as we know it, that even there, you are revealed. Even there was God the Father orchestrating history to point to you. Jesus, you're amazing. Father, we thank you for what you've done throughout history, that you've set the scene time and time and time again. Use all things for your purposes.
And that means you use all things in our lives for your purposes as well. Lord, I thank you that we all have different backgrounds. We all have different childhoods. We have different upbringings. We have different experiences and opportunities. And you're still behind the scenes and you've been leading us deeper to you. Help us to embrace that. Help us to not ignore that or turn away and do our own thing again. Because we human beings are so apt to do that. But Lord, help us open our eyes to see you at work evermore. That we might dive deeper into your purposes, into your promises, into running and pursuing you. That we might know you more. And that others in this area around us might know you more. So Father, we say thank you. I just, I just feel right now that if, if there's something you've been having trouble letting go of, be it struggling to forgive someone from the past, be it struggling to, to resist getting bitter about circumstances, and you're finding it hard to trust him, or finding it hard just to relax back and know he's at work. All our eyes are closed. Just put your hands out in front of you, as if you're offering him something, and just say, "Here it is, please. It's in your hands." The great author of life, who orchestrates all things, is more than capable of looking after you. He's more than capable of protecting you. He's more than help capable of leading you deeper into intimacy, into growth, into maturity. He's more than capable of looking after you when you step out of your comfort zone. And if you still don't know Jesus as Lord and Saviour, then here's an opportunity right now. Just to say, Jesus, you are God and I am not. I'm sorry for the sin in my life, the dirt, the stains, the darkness that I keep, I keep resorting to. Say, so I thank you that you died on the cross for my sin. I thank you that because of you I can stand clean before the Father. Praise you, Jesus. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raising from the dead, you will be saved. Yes. Praise Jesus. So Lord, we just say thank you for these things. And may these truths just dwell in our hearts evermore. May help them to linger by Holy Spirit, to linger in our hearts this coming week. That we might know you more. In Jesus' precious name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. If you want to pray about anything at all, please do come and find me, John, David, your cell leader. We'd love to pray with you. Anything you want to work through. If not, there are teas and coffee served. Please do loiter. Thank you, everyone.